Hello and welcome to this episode of the Cyclo Edition, the podcast for those looking to go above and beyond in their understanding of the organic literature. I'm Matt Gensink, and I'm joined today by Grace Lutowski, Wesley Swords, and Kate Nicastri. Today we're going to be talking about a total synthesis of maximycin recently published by the Baron Group. The Baron Lab studies complex natural product total synthesis while aiming for the ideal synthesis in terms of atom, step, and redox economy. So today on the podcast, we have a special guest with us, Kate Nicastri from the Shoemaker Group here at UW-Madison. So she is going to be a fourth year, just finishing up her third year of her PhD. And so far, her PhD work has focused on total syntheses. And also just a shout out to her, she has published two papers recently. Uh, So one in Nature Communications and then a review uh, that just came out in Angavant. So definitely check those out. Welcome, Kate, to the podcast. We're happy to have you here. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Uh, Yeah, I'm really excited to be here today. As uh, Grace sort of mentioned in the beginning, total synthesis has been one of my passions really since I started in chemistry as an undergraduate. I'll give a quick intro on my PhD work. So really my work in the Shoemaker group has sort of focused in two different categories, uh, one of them being sort of a more methodology project. So the first portion of my work has been dedicated to studying a intermediate called an azeridinium illid. And so these are sort of high energy intermediates that are generated from the reaction between an azeridine and a hot electrophile, such as a carbene. And so uh, these illids decompose in a variety of different manners. And so I've taken to studying their rearrangement reactions. And that's that nature communications paper that uh, has been up and you guys could check out. There we're looking at the formation of dehydropipridines from the decomposition or really what turns out to be a 1,4 pseudocyclotropic rearrangement of the illid intermediate. And uh, the second sort of facet of my PhD work in the Shoemaker group has really been focusing on the total synthesis of complex aminocyclopentatol natural products. So specifically those being pactomycin and geogiomycin. So we just published a review on approaches towards those molecules in Angavanta, and I hope that there'll be some more work coming from me soon in that arena, uh, but time will tell. <laughs> uh, but really my love for total synthesis, as I mentioned sort of earlier, started in my undergraduate career. I actually worked in a total synthesis group at a small liberal arts college called Holy Cross back in the East Coast. And there I actually worked for someone named Kevin Quinn, who is also an alum of the UW chemistry department. He worked for Steve Burke. Uh, And he sort of instilled in me this appreciation of complex molecular architecture, sort of the stubbornness and uh, drive it takes to complete a total synthesis, and sort of the admiration of enantioselectivity and stereoselectivity. And so total synthesis sort of brings all of those sorts of things together. And I think it's sort of this culmination um, of all of the cleverness and really art that comes from organic chemistry. Thank you, Kate, for being here today. Um, As you know, I guess a little bit about uh, Matt West and I's research, we don't do a lot of total synthesis. So it'll be really nice to have the perspective of Kate on the podcast today as we talk about the total synthesis of mascomycin. All right. So like Grace mentioned, we are covering the total synthesis of maximycin today. This was published recently uh, by the Baring Group. And it's a molecule that was originally isolated back in 2020, and its isolation was reported in Angavant. It's a fungal metabolite, and it was isolated from an Alaskan soil sample back in 2013. So the isolation of the natural product was actually conducted through sort of this crowdsourcing effort, which is, I think, actually pretty fascinating. 
So it turns out uh, that the two lead researchers on that uh, publication, Mooberry and Sachevich, uh, they have started sort of this natural product sourcing program um, where they look to the community to collect different soil samples and three different sorts of soil topologies or sort of weather environments. So they have a program that goes on in Alaska to collect soil samples from that region with that specific climate, as well as Hawaii and I believe Oklahoma. And so through this sort of effort of getting the community involved, they've actually been able to acquire a lot more material and Maximison actually just comes out of this effort. So it's a, not necessarily a traditional way that I think people um, expect the isolation of natural products to occur, but it's a cool way in which a scientific community is getting involved uh, with sort of the regular everyday citizen. And I think that's sort of a special here because as scientists, we're always trying to bridge the divide. This is interesting, Kate, because yeah, the, this program and, and the style of science that you've described is called citizen science. And it's become very popular in more of the social and ecology fields where they're focused on you know, migration of birds or the insects and um, those sorts of things. One of the more popular ways that it's been done is with monarch butterflies and tracking their migration. But I think the use here was really interesting and it's getting more towards a chemical sense. Just coming from the field of photochemistry, there have been a couple of reports now that have come out in um, the Journal of JChem Ed, as well as a couple others that have focused on like using undergrad labs where you start searching for either photocatalysts or photocatalytic reactions, which um, I think is kind of interesting. It's been hard to bring citizen science down, I think, to some of the more fundamental chemistry um, and biological questions. So seeing it done this way has been really interesting. And so, yeah, one of the aspects of Maximizing synthesis was that it wasn't one of the samples that the researchers collected, but came out of a um, sample that was submitted from an Alaskan citizen's, you know, property. And so it, it, you know, this would not have been something that had been discovered had this program not been developed, which I think is really cool. I remember where I first read this originally, I think it was the, um, the Billion Dollar Molecule, which is, I think I've told you guys about just a really interesting book if you're interested in the pharmaceutical industry. But I remember them saying that one of the pharmaceutical companies had a program, I'm not sure if it's still active, where they would pay their employees whenever they went on vacation to bring back soil samples. But I think it just goes to show that Earth has so much diversity and we can really see that in the molecules of different regions. So maximycin is a fungal metabolite. Um, and what was really interesting is that when they were researching its biosynthetic pathway, they found that it came out of a combination of three pathways, um, a polyketide synthase, a non-ribosomal peptide synthase, and the shikimate pathway. And so the mixture of these three pathways led to the synthesis of this molecule. The name actually comes out of kind of this weird mixed pathway synthesis where maximycin was based loosely on the Latin uh, Maximophere and Nacellus, which means exceedingly blended. And so they really just wanted to try and develop a name that came out of this idea that the molecule is made from these three different synthetic pathways. Also, based on some feeding studies, the researchers were able to explore sort of the biosynthetic pathway, or um, really mainly the way that these pathways join, these three pathways join to uh, ultimately generate maximycin. And uh, one thing that they discovered likely is that the eastern fragment of this molecule comes together first and then ultimately through an NO bond forming reaction or through scission rather of the NO bond that you can uh, tack on or form that western fragment onto the eastern fragment. And so I think we'll talk about it a little bit more as we go through the barren total synthesis. They take a 
quite different approach, ultimately forming the pyridone ring as sort of their final culminating step. But I think likely we'll talk about sort of their initial goal here, which was sort of um, a path that was more similar to this biosynthetic path, ultimately appending on that Western fragment. Yeah, it was really interesting to see um, on their blog post. If you haven't checked out the Baron blog post yet, there's a lot of useful information there and a lot of like behind the scenes that you can gain from that. But they say on there that they went after this molecule because they thought they could demonstrate a decarboxylative cross-coupling through the C3-C7 bond, like Kate was kind of just explaining, so taking a more traditional type approach on the synthesis of the molecule. They thought synthesizing this molecule through a decarboxylative cross-coupling approach would be a great demonstration of that chemistry because it's a modern technique that has been used quite frequently now in the literature, but also this is an extremely hindered system that they would be forming that bond. So that's both ortho substituted and alpha substituted to form that bond. And so if they were able to do the cross-coupling, this would be one of the most hindered systems able to demonstrate that chemistry. Yeah, and as even more evidence for the really hindered bond that bridges the pyridone fragment and the cyclohexyl fragment, they mentioned that this molecule exists as a pair of atropisomers. Um, and just as review, atropisomers are just conformers which arise from restricted rotation about a single bond. And that restricted rotation is, again, because there's a lot of steric bulk, like Grace was mentioning, around that bond. So it just goes to show that this cross-coupling strategy that they initially targeted would be really hard. I think, yes, they tried this strategy and they ended up using Molander's conditions to get a 9% yield through this strategy. And like Matt said, that didn't work very well, but it's also kind of impressive that they were even able to get a 9% yield for forming such a hindered bond. So while that strategy did not work out for them, I still think that's really impressive. And I was really glad that they shared that information with us because you can see that even though that this is so hindered, the decarboxylative cross-coupling did work to a small extent. <laughs> yeah, I think it should be noted that um, there have been a couple of synthetic routes towards parts of this molecule or um, the, the, the total synthesis of molecules similar to um, maximycin, but they don't include the Western path, um, which, is, which comes from that Shikimat um, pathway. And so what the, the two previous um, reports that at least the Barron um, paper cites did was look at um, some sort of way to couple those two carbons for, um, on that C7, C3 bond. But of course, you know, in their, in the previous syntheses, they're not trying to attach that ring C with those three, you know, um, cis substituents. Instead, they've gone after, you know, less um, sterically hindered um, systems, or they formed that ring after making that C3, C7 bond coupling. So they'll make the C3, C7, and then build the cyclohexane ring off of that added substituent. And so, going after that direct cross-coupling was ambitious to say the least. Um, and the fact that you, they were able to identify a system that gave them a 9% yield, I think is pretty impressive, but it also speaks towards, I think this idea that um, the development of methodologies while extremely useful for um, fundamental feedstocks um, and things like that is not always directly applicable to the use in um, these really complex total syntheses. I think that's a great point, and I think that's something that really comes out of the synthesis. And as we go forward in explaining uh, how they approached each step, 
you can see that there was quite a bit of optimization done to allow each of the steps in the reaction to work. And so while they were trying to implement some very modern techniques and some classical strategies, they did have to optimize quite a bit to get those reactions to go on such a complex system. I do also think it's sort of worth mentioning that when exploring total synthesis in general, you always sort of end up, I think, having this balance or this interplay of wanting to, let's say, demonstrate or display your methodology because you think perhaps that would be a clever or interesting way to make that disconnect or that bond. But sometimes reliable methods or sort of redefining your strategy can actually lead to simpler solutions. And so that cross-coupling reaction is certainly extremely impressive. But I think as we'll see, they take a different approach. So like we've been talking about, their initial approach uh, to synthesizing this molecule was to synthesize uh, the core C3, C7 bond through a decarboxylative cross-coupling approach. But when that uh, did not work out for them and they were not able to optimize that as highly as they intended, uh, they decided to reevaluate the synthesis and go after a different core disconnection. So instead they redefined their disconnection to do a late stage synthesis of the pyridone heterocycle itself. So instead of starting with the pyridone and substituting it, they instead constructed the heterocycle core late stage in their synthesis. This led to a much more convergent approach, um, perhaps than they were initially planning. And I do think it's worth pointing out that uh, the Barron Group also just published another powerful paper. So they completed recently the total synthesis of Taxol. That publication rather takes a different approach where really what they're doing is generating the terpene fragment really rapidly and then doing subsequent oxidative transformations to install the highly oxygenated framework of that molecule. Um, this sort of stands in contrast to a lot of total syntheses of taxol that exist out there uh, that take a much more com highly convergent approach to so something like we're describing here where you would pre-generate that oxidative complexity on the fragments and ultimately bring them together. And so in certain ways and for certain molecules, that strategy can be the best and most efficacious. I think in taxol, the Barron group really does prove that actually leaving the oxidative sequence to the end is highly beneficial. They're able to get the, I believe, shortest step count and overall highest, not yield uh, in terms of longest linear steps, but um, the greatest amount of taxol ever generated out of all of the total syntheses. But here, clearly with such an expedient synthesis of this molecule, that pyridone disconnection was really key to rapidly generating the natural product. And by uh, the convergent approach, we're meaning they synthesized two key fragments separately and then brought them together through a key synthetic step. And like we've mentioned, this uh, synthetic step is the formation of the pyridone heterocycle. So jumping into the synthesis, the group started with a really simple mazitoline-derived carboxylic acid and did a diastereoselective hydrogenation with Adams catalyst, which is just a platinum catalyst uh, with hydrogen to get to the corresponding cyclohexane. Note here that this is a stereoselective reaction. It's not an enantioselective reaction. They're going to set their stereo centers later in the route. I think there is one, one interesting fact that I just, you know, coming from not being a massive synthetic chemist, I you know, looked up what Adams catalyst is, and it's platinum four oxide as a hydrate, but that's not the active catalyst. It's actually once you put it in the presence of H2, you make platinum black, which then does the synhydrogenation. 
but Adams developed it because all of the previous methods when they were trying to do it in a lab course that were used to generate plot in a block were irreproducible. Um, so different students would make different batches. And so um, he developed this um, platinum oxide hydrogenation method to provide reproducible synthetic results with these sorts of syn hydrogenations. Another interesting like thing to mention or thing to note here is that they were able to see the symmetry from the molecule and ring C and translate that onto this hydrogenation step and being able to form compound eight and then later on diversify it is really nice because as we go forward, they'll be able to set all their stereocenters easily. So being able to see the symmetry of the ring C in their molecule, I thought was just really neat and really takes a noticeable eye to be able to see the symmetry aligned in that part of the molecule. Yeah, so essentially what they've done is taken a very easily obtained sort of feedstock chemical and done this hydrogenation, uh, what will rapidly become in the next series of desymmetrization steps, a fairly complex product that they can then elaborate onto. And so, as Grace was mentioning, it is a clever way to get this scaffold started. Yeah, so going forward, um, they then need to desymmetrize this symmetrical cyclohexane ring C. And so they propose to do this through a catalytic palladium reaction to install a methanol group off of one of the two methyls sin to that carboxylate group. And so um, they initially um, screened directing groups. So their goal was to form a six-membered palatocycle during the catalytic step. And so they wanted to use a directing group approach. And so they screened the addition of a bunch of different directing groups onto that carboxylic acid um, functionality. They ended up picking a chiral PIP type directing group and basically what they wanted off of it was having a 4-chloro off of the pyridine ring of that directing group ended up giving them the best yield and 58% with almost a perfect diastereoselectivity for the methanol addition to one of those two uh, methyl groups. And just to piggyback off what all of you have said and really underscore the power of this approach, um, what they're really doing here is desymmetrizing a meso compound. So the cyclohexane starting material 8 is a meso compound and in one diastereoselective reaction after the directing group has been installed they've essentially set four stereocenters just by doing the one selective reaction and like grace was alluding to this is a really powerful strategy and this is a strategy that many chemists use in their retrosynthetic analysis in that they look for hidden symmetry in a molecule because if you can retrosynthetically go back to a meso compound in the forward direction, you can set a lot of stereocenters at once. So the classical approach related to synthesis is starting with a racemic or a prochiral substrate and doing an enantioselective step and then doing further diastereoselective steps down the line. But with this approach, you can start with a meso starting material and then do one enantioselective step and establish a lot of stereocenters in that step. I think additionally, we have been saying um, this step desymmetrizes the molecule, it sets all of the stereocenters, which is really awesome. Uh, but the transformation that they do to set this is also a CH functionalization reaction. And those are becoming more popular in the literature and it's the very ideal way to functionalize a molecule, but they're also extremely difficult. So here they're able to get palladium insertion into ACH bond. Uh, I think Kate mentioned earlier they form the six-member palladocycle and then intercept it with a methoxy 
nucleophile. So to go into a little bit more depth um, with how this platelet cycle works, the reason you want a directing group is to be able to position that palladium metal center right next to the CH bond that you want to activate. And so the pyridine amide directing group that they use um, uses the nitrogen on the pyridine and the amide nitrogen to first ligate the palladium and bring it close to the CH bond or at the fifth carbon that would allow them to form a six-membered platelet cycle after CH activation. So by ligating that palladium initially, it can then do the CH activation next to that the carbon-hydrogen bond that they want activated. It is unique that they form a six-membered platelet cycle. Five-membered platelet cycles are typically preferred. However, they do cite a good number of papers that have been able to access a six-membered platelet cycle. And just kind of scrolling through those, what we found was that the best ways to kind of favor that six-membered ring is either to remove the CH bond that you would activate to form a five-membered ring or through a steric or stereochemical means kind of make that CH bond activation in the gamma position that to form the six-membered platelet cycle much more favored over the um, five-membered ring, which seems to be more of what's going on here since they do have a, a CH that could be activated to form a five-membered ring, but the six-membered most likely just forms faster due to the stereochemistry of the molecule. And so tying together what Grace and Wes have just said, you know, one, uh, directing groups can be extremely important for these types of CH functionalization reactions. And even, you know, just to quote Grace, CH functionalization is really hard. So um, one important facet of this reaction or this directing group that they use is that ultimately they can just use strong acid uh, to remove it and ultimately undergo this lactinization reaction to give compound 12. They do mention, I believe, either in the body or the SI that they can actually resubject their directing group and utilize it again in the um, desymmetrization reaction as they pull material forward. So that's also an added benefit. Yeah, I think they said they were able to recover 80% of their directing group back. So like Kate just said, that is a huge benefit when you think about a lot of the current limitations within CH functionalization chemistry is the addition and removal of the directing group and how difficult that can be. So once they were able to access lactone 12, what they really wanted to do was a homologation reaction to add a CH2 or a methylene group between the carbonyl and the cyclohexane ring. And what they wanted to try to do was to do a decarboxylation followed by a Giza addition to add that CH2 unit. As you can see, if you look at their SI, there was a lot of different attempts to do this before they found a really nice solution. So what they wanted to do initially was to take the cyclic lactone they had made, subject the lactone to base to do a saponification that would reveal the carboxylic acid and they initially wanted to try to do a decarboxylation under reductive conditions. So this is some classic barren chemistry to convert that carboxylic acid to an NHB ester. And the whole idea there is just to make this carboxylic acid easily reducible. So after it's reduced, it will decarboxylate and you'll get to a carbon-centered radical that can then add to an electron deficient alkene. In this case, that's phenylvinyl cell phone. This is known as a Giza reaction. If you're not familiar with that reaction, it's essentially just the a carbon radical adding into an electron deficient alkene. Um, but what they noticed is that the decarboxylation worked well and the addition into the electron deficient alkene worked well, but the corresponding radical did a 1,5-HAT with the alcohol to get to an alpha oxy radical. 
And that's where things kind of started going downhill because they saw further addition of that radical into another equivalent of the electron deficient alkene, which was undesirable. After their initial attempt didn't work, they noticed that they were forming this alpha oxy radical. And if they could just oxidize that alpha oxy radical up to the aldehyde, that would set them up really well to convert that aldehyde to an alkene in a subsequent step. So what they really wanted to do here was to do an initial reduction and then an oxidation of the formed alpha oxy radical. But it's somewhat hard to do a reduction and an oxidation as we know in the same pot. But one good way to do this is with photoredox chemistry. So the group tried a number of different conditions using photoredox chemistry to do this transformation. And they did get some reasonable yields, but after extensive optimization, they didn't get anything that was really highly yielding. So then they flipped their strategy and wondered if they could do this whole reaction under oxidative conditions. So an initial oxidation of the carboxylic acid followed by an oxidation of the alpha oxy radical. And in classic Barron style, they tried to do this electrochemically through a Kobe oxidation. Kobe oxidation is a really uh, old reaction to oxidize carboxylic acid to the corresponding carbon-centered radical after decarboxylation. But this didn't work so well. So they finally settled on meniski-like conditions, which are the ones shown in the paper. So there are a lot of different reagents here. So I think it would be helpful just to explain briefly what each of them is doing. So the sodium hydroxide is doing that initial saponification of the lactone to reveal the carboxylic acid. The silver is then oxidizing that carboxylic acid. And after a decarboxylation, a carbon-centered radical is revealed. The sodium persulfate is what's oxidizing the silver catalyst. Um, and then they also mentioned that they needed bisulfate in this reaction to buffer their carboxylate to avoid insoluble mixtures. So after the silver oxidation of the carboxylic acid to the corresponding carbon-centered radical, that radical can add into the electron-deficient alkene. Then the corresponding radical from that reaction can do a 1,5-hydrogen atom transfer, yielding an alpha-oxy radical intermediate. This intermediate then can be oxidized to the corresponding aldehyde with their iron oxidant that they add. And it's a bit of a, a weird reaction because they have to employ both a silver oxidant and an iron oxidant. But they rationalize this by saying that the silver oxidant is best for oxidizing the carboxylic acid, whereas the iron oxidant is best for oxidizing that alpha oxy radical. And in the end, after all of this optimization, they get a beautiful reaction with 91% yield greater than 20 to 1 dr. And they even mentioned that their NMRs are incredibly pure and they can go on to the next step without purification. And just to add a little bit to that, Matt, I think they also mentioned that attempts at purifying the aldehyde actually were very challenging and this molecule would typically decompose. And so it is worth highlighting that something that total synthesis chemists or synthetic chemists frequently have to consider is how they're going to purify their material um, because they have to pull it forward to a subsequent step. And so having a reaction that is so clean is extremely helpful in pulling through less than stable intermediates. And so that enables them to rapidly jump into the next reaction uh, without having to suffer with the yield. So from uh, that very clean aldehyde 14, you can go directly into a simple Wittig reaction Next, uh, what they are trying to do is get back to a carboxylic acid from the sulfone with now that carbon homologation or that extra carbon uh, in there. And so uh, what they ultimately do is expose this to base and molecular oxygen. And so this is sort of an interesting reaction. You 
ultimately get deprotonation alpha to your sulfone that can then attack molecular oxygen to form a peroxide intermediate, which can ultimately break down to give back the carboxylic acid uh, of interest. And so they just simply here also do a subsequent trapping of the carboxylic acid with the dimethyl sulfate to give the methyl ester. So the last step of this um, formation of fragment six was to the second part of the diacid moiety. Uh, so they use LDA and Manders reagent to install an ester alpha to the carbonyl uh, that's present in molecule 15. This is then followed with in situ hydrolysis with potassium hydroxide to form the diacid. So they mentioned that this reagent is specifically used in this case because they weren't really seeing any reactivity utilizing other reagents. And so something that just may be of note is that Manders reagent is frequently used uh, to affect regio-controlled synthesis of beta-keto esters, and it is often the reagent of choice if you're seeing O-acylation potentially in your reaction and you're looking to avoid that. Uh, so next we're going to look at the second part of the convergent synthesis with how they made fragment five, which ultimately started from this shikimic acid-derived uh, epoxide. And so uh, this is a known compound. It has been made before, and it has actually been used, it's been used as an intermediate in the synthesis of pericosin E. But how they make it is starting from shikimic acetyl protection oil, and then convert the free alcohol to a triflate, uh, which then eliminates to a diene. From here, they do a bromohydronation, uh, which will add the bromine and the hydroxyl group trans across the alkene, which then goes on to form the epoxide, uh, which is their starting material 16 for their synthesis. So after accessing known epoxide 16, they reacted the epoxide with N-Bach hydroxylamine through a simple nucleophilic attack to open the epoxide. And they confirmed the regioselectivity of this epoxide opening by um, X-ray analysis. Once they had intermediate 17, a simple TBS protection and condensation reaction gives five. So after the condensation, the group has now constructed both of the fragments needed to do the key cyclization that they talked about initially. So this reaction proceeds first through acylchloride formation from the diacid followed by in-situ acyl triflate formation with silver triflate. And that's just to make a stronger electrophile, which we'll talk about more in depth in a bit. And the oxime ether then acts as a nucleophile to that acyl triflate electrophile. The nitrogen of the oxime ether attacks at the carbonyl carbon. This gives an enamine intermediate which then collapses down as a nucleophile and attacks the remaining acyl triflate electrophile to form the pyridone ring. So this reaction ends up working out beautifully, but as many reactions, this is sort of the culmination of a lot of investigation. And so um, I think we all thought that this was a really interesting step, this late stage formation of the pyridone and this TMS substituted oxine ether is not actually where uh, the Baron group started when they were looking to affect this transformation. And so what initially they were looking at was uh, an oxymether that was lacked rather the TMS group. Um, so they called this DES-TMS5, as you can see sort of in the scheme there. 
Um, but upon just trying these conditions, so reacting our dicarboxylic acid in the presence of oxalochloride to what we would presume would be generation of a diacyl chloride uh, and expose that with base to our oxine ether, they actually saw no reaction or very little product. And so uh, they do comment actually in the blog post that the general appearance of this reaction after a couple of hours was pretty bad. And so they knew that something likely was going wrong. It may also be worth mentioning that they did consider potentially that this was a steric issue at this point, but they looked at a variety of different sort of protecting groups that might decrease, I, I think, what would be the steric bulk of the oxime ether itself. And so after they started ticking through these sorts of um, questions that they had about why their reaction wasn't working, they ultimately came to the conclusion that it, possibly the oxime was not sufficiently nucleophilic. And so this is sort of this age-old interplay of electrophilicity and nucleophilicity. So organic chemistry is really just, or frequently is just the reaction of nucleophiles and electrophiles. I had a college professor that used to tell me that all the time, that if you could figure out which was which, you'd likely uh, be able to figure out your reaction. I think this is sort of a perfect example of this. So now they're sort of on to the fact that the oxine ether may not be sufficiently nucleophilic. Um, but that also led them to the question of whether their electrophile was sufficiently electrophilic. And so this is sort of how we probe uh, or get to the, the utilization of this TMS-substituted oxine ether. First and foremost, which is probably one of the easier experiments for them to do in this situation, could take a model compound of the dye ACL chloride and subject it to the conditions of the DES TMS oxine ether. And ultimately what they found here was that they saw no reaction with the dye acyl chloride. And so that sort of um, puzzled them a little bit. That means that they're not actually seeing nucleophilic addition of the oxime ether into the acyl chloride. And so at that point, they also knew for sure that they needed to enhance the electrophilicity of the diacid chloride. And so that's ultimately um, that leads us to sort of two important facets of this reaction. One, the addition of silver triflate in super stoichiometric amounts. What this ends up doing, they believe, is converting this diacyl chloride to a uh, diacyl triflate which can sort of help enhance the electrophilicity of that intermediate. The second part of this uh, is the institution of this silicon group. And so what they believe is happening here uh, is something similar to you would see in the Hosomi-Sakurai reaction, uh, where we're seeing a beta-silicon activation. And so as that oxime ether attacks what is now presumably the acyl triflate, uh, you are forming a greater positive charge on the carbon of that oxime ether. And so ultimately what the beta-silicon effect does, right, is that sigma SI carbon bond can donate its electron density into that empty p orbital, and we can therefore, in this case, enhance the nucleophilicity of the oxime ether. And so ultimately the interplay of what they call here is this push-pull system uh, helps them accomplish this reaction uh, in a pretty high yield for such a late stage and complex transformation. After this pretty awesome cyclization, they were just about to the natural product, uh, and it was just a simple deprotection step with TFA, which unveiled the protected alcohols and revealed maximizing in 70% yield. Something um, generally that I enjoy uh, about barren papers is that the SI is very elaborate. And so that really allows you as the reader to dig in to sort of their thought process uh, about and their approach to the total or the natural products that they're investigating. And so 
um, especially if anyone that's listening to this is, is a new reader or is trying to get into um, how to better digest total synthesis papers, sometimes it can be easy to get lost uh, in a very densely packed communication, but uh, going and digging into the SI here is really helpful and it leads you to some really important discoveries that they had along the way. And so uh, total synthesis is never as easy as it seems in the final product. I think this paper is about six pages with the references included, um, but there was a ton of work that went into here. They didn't hit it uh, the nail on the head uh, with every reaction that they ran on the first go. So it's a great paper and they did an excellent job. I think overall, in my opinion, I really learned a lot from each step. Um, I think this was a really great showcase of both modern chemistry and modern reactions, but also some more classical reactions, uh, but combined with looking at their thought process by looking at the SI, you were able to really um, understand the chemistry that went on and uh, really just learn how they went about targeting this molecule and the reactions that were necessary to um, get the yields and selectivity that they did. And that's our show. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Cyclo Edition. For more information on the papers discussed, we have included a selection of resources we used in our research at the end of the YouTube video. And we would love to hear from you. Please comment below the YouTube video and reach out on social media. You can follow the Cyclo Edition on Twitter where we will post updates about our next episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. We are releasing episodes throughout the summer and will announce the upcoming papers and episodes on social media. 